Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, July 31st, and this is the weekly market update. Of course, the disclaimer, anything that you hear on this podcast or see in this video is not to be taken as investment advice. I am not a financial planner. I'm just a guy on the internet. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, this week's reality check, I'm going to lay off the, uh, a little bit at least, some of the provocative statements I've been making in the last couple of weeks. But what I did want to talk about is revisit critical thinking and the need to think for yourself as we see new information come out on various themes that uh, seem to be controversial. You know, one of the things that the Bolsheviks were good at, or a lot of authoritarian governments, is they try to politicize everything. They, everything is the political. Everything must be uh, in accordance with the party and the state, or you are deemed a counter-revolutionary, you're a danger to society, you must be re-educated, liquidated, whatever. And not that I'm calling for that, not that I'm saying that's going to happen, but what I'm trying to tell you is, is that the ability to think clearly, the ability to be contrarian in all facets of your life will constantly be challenged by normies, people that go along, get along, people that are safe in the cocoon of the agate prop and, and state organs that uh, are controlling information flows. And so this is uh, George Carlin. A lot of you young guys probably don't know who he is. He was a comedian, but uh, I didn't really find him that funny. I actually found him insightful. He, he made a lot of good comments about things uh, and it was supposed to be taken as comedy, but it was actually a lot of the statements were based in fact and were true. And they say that some of the best comedy is based on real life or based on truths. You know, comics used to be one of the people that could say things that other people couldn't say in the mainstream just because it was taken as comedy. And even that now is being uh, restricted because of the cancel culture and because of restrictions on free speech and people's, you know, the controlling authorities willing to, unwillingness to let ideas compete. I mean, if you have bad ideas or ideas that don't work, then if you know that they can't win in the free market of ideas, your other option is to suppress the other side or suppress the other argument. And so I thought this quote was very interesting. He says, my mind doesn't work that way. I got this real moron thing I do. It's called thinking. And I'm not a very good American because I like to form my own opinions. I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. And I don't take very seriously the media or the press in this country, unquote. So I kind of, this was like in a comedy uh, stand-up routine. And, but it's kind of true, right? I mean, think about the statement. I'm not a very good American because I like to form my own opinions. I mean, this was supposed to be, you know, I don't get lost in these illusions and these leave it to beaver 1950s civics class views on the Americans, American state, like it's so extraordinary. The only thing that allows freedom 
and all these other things to be maintained is that it has to be vigorously maintained by the people. As Ben Franklin said to the woman that asked him what they were, what the founding fathers were doing in Independence Hall, he said, responded to her that we had created a republic if you can keep it, woman. So it takes work and most people don't, I mean, we're, we're, we're not, we're just like a very large multicultural empire at this time. And we're just coming apart at the seams. We have clowns as leaders. We have had clowns for leaders for a while. We have distrust in the media, now distrust in the medical establishment, distrust in all of the different institutions here in the, and so, you know, you have to, I think, and I've stated before, you have to be someone that you have to think things through for yourself. If you're going to rely, I've said before, if you're going to rely on other people to make decisions for you, then you take your life into your own hands. I don't do that. I don't encourage you to do that. You know, this ostensibly, this effort that I put into these videos originally started as financial and economic discussion around investments. Some people would prefer that uh, I keep it that way. But, you know, the way circumstances have evolved over the last few years that I've been doing this, this videos, you can't separate the two anymore, right? Because these things are, are all inseparable at this point. And if you don't take into consider the politicization of our monetary system or the Fed, then how can you really, you know, how can you really have a grasp of what's going to happen economically? How can you make real decisions? Now, some people, I guess, you know, they, they allow it to get politicize their views too much where they pick an us side or them side and then that clouds their view. What I think people should do is think for themselves. They should take in the information, which is getting more and more difficult because more and more of the information sources are being state controlled or being influenced by the state. And uh, so I go back to what Mr. Carlin says here, and I agree. That's one of my first rules. I don't believe anything the government tells me. I've been around a long time. I've been involved in the government. I worked in, I was in the military for 15 years. I know all about what the government says. I know all about the government lying continuously. That's what they do. Uh, it's just what they do to perpetuate their power, to perpetuate what they want to do. They will say it's in the general interest, but lying's lying. And um, that's just how it is. And I like this other statement. I mean, these statements were made years ago, guys, not in the last, this guy's been dead for a while. You know, I like what he says further on here. I don't take very seriously the media or the press in this country. I don't either. Um, they just have been completely corrupted. There's no journalistic standards. There's no desire to get to the truth. It's, you know, advocacy and propaganda at this point. So I just thought this was a good quote. Uh, all these things do apply in my view. I mean, what I like to do is, it's funny, you can go, if you want to see an example of how things are controlled, go to Google and put in a search for some kind of topic that's controversial, like uh, the disease that can't be mentioned, or the various alternative treatments that are being suppressed, uh, which I, you should know who, what the names are. I'm not going to repeat them because I don't want the AI to ding me. And then go to yandex.com which is the russian company yandex which is kind of like a google in russia and you can enter in the same terms of some controversial subject and you'll get completely different search results 
Or if you don't want to trust the Russian site, you can go to DuckDuckGo. What I'm trying to tell you is, is that you have complete and total manipulation of, of information around subjects that have been deemed as being so critical or so sensitive that you can't get a different view. And so you have to make an effort to get these other views. And you know, just do that experiment, do it on any number of subjects and you'll see different results come up. So what that tells you is, is that um, these algorithms are manipulated to give you certain results based on what search terms you put in. And so are you really getting the straight dope or are you getting what some billionaire running a company in Silicon Valley wants you to see? And by the way, where does power like that come from? Who gave these people this power? Where are the investigative journalists? Where are the questions? Where are the you know, hard, hard people taken to task and held accountable? It doesn't exist. There's an excuse for everything. And so I just wanted to point this out. You can take it the way you'd like to take it. You know, uh, I've seen, it's unfortunate, you know, I've seen uh, some, you know, negative comments. It is what it is. You're not going to please all the people all the time. And some people are so wedded to the ideology that they can't break free. Or they're so wedded to the narrative that they can't break free. Or they can't, the cognitive dissonance is so great inside their mind that they can't change their, their view or opinion. And those typically, those people are not going to be successful in the markets and uh, probably not very successful in life. You have to see things for the way they are, not the way you want them to be. There's plenty of things that I wish were different, but reality is reality, whether I like it or not. So just a little bit on that, I wanted to touch on that. Uh, the second thing I wanted to talk about was incentives matter. You know, one of the things that Charlie Munger talks about is incentives. He says that he feels like he's made a study of that in his career. And he believes, I think he made a statement that he believes he's in the top 5% of people in the, in the world that can look at a situation, determine what the incentives are, and then kind of forecast what the outcome is. And incentives do matter. People are guided by incentives or disincentives. It's just, it's a foregone conclusion. And so this was on Twitter. I didn't get a chance to verify if these numbers are correct, but it's something you can go look for if you want. It seems, you know, to my mind, uh, possible that this is exactly what's going on. We've talked about this before when I talked about the pharmaceutical companies and other videos, and, you know, they exist to do one thing is sell more pharmaceuticals. If you believe that the multinational pharmaceutical companies' primary mission in life is your health, then you're sadly mistaken. You're confused. You are uh, wrong. Their primary objective is to increase sales and revenues and profits and uh, make more money. That's what they do. If people happen to be, you know, the, the desire is to cure people. And there are plenty of great pharmaceuticals. I have somebody in my family that's basically has a serious illness and they have been saved and their life extended by a drug that was developed 20 years ago. Uh, we know this. The pharmaceuticals products are not necessarily bad, nor am I against vaccination. Uh, there's, you know, smallpox is a terrible disease. Go and look up pictures and study of it and polio and these things, they were eradicated. But, uh, you know, these things are done for a profit. And I don't necessarily have a, a, a negative view towards it, but I do understand what incentivizes these companies to do is to create 
you know, more usage of their product if they can. You know, one third of the drugs in the country are prescribed off label uh, for other conditions that are that are not necessarily uh, for the pharmaceutical companies don't necessarily they don't actively encourage it, but they're not lobbying Congress to stop that from happening. And so here's what we have, you know, Pfizer now sees 33.5 billion in 2021 vaccine sales up from 26 billion and says a third dose of its COVID-19 shot strongly boosts protection against the Delta variant. So I read an interesting editorial by somebody I follow. Why don't we have these, why don't we have some real studies? Why don't we look at the real data? And so this isn't what we were sold. We weren't sold that we were gonna have software as a service as it applies to our bodies. What do I mean? Well, you download some software like Adobe Acrobat and you're allowed to use for free the PDF reader, uh, but you don't get the full function of the suite of Adobe Ac Acrobat unless you pay for that, those functions. And you know the way I was understanding this originally, the way this was sold, was that we were waiting for these particular vaccines to come on board and that we were going to be given these vaccines and that this was all going to go away, that this was going to solve the problem, we we're going to be cured. But now we're being told that, you know, now you have to get booster shots, okay? So that's additional sales, right? Uh, how long does that continue for? Because we see from the data from Israel that the protection against these variants and, and this disease that can't be mentioned goes down over time. These aren't like polio or smallpox or measles or something like that vaccinations where you have long lasting protection or lifetime protection. This is just like an average flu shot. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You got to keep getting them all the time if that's what your persuasion is. And of course, you know, pay this window right here as far as these vaccine manufacturers are, are concerned. So incentives matter. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. I'm not saying it's anything. What I think we should do is have real double blind tests by independent authorities to see if these things really work. And if the claims that they were originally made about the high efficacy rates and, and, and what they could really do are true, because now it seems to be that it may not be actual, the data may not been accurate because they weren't fully tested properly in the right conditions. We were rushed to market. And now, you know, we have a group of people that have taken this, which are in the hundreds of millions, if not billions, and we have a control group of people that will refuse to get it. So we can see for a fact. We can also test and we can try uh, what they're doing in India. They're giving out you know, various other treatments that can't be mentioned either that are being suppressed in the US and it's only costing $1.39 and they're giving them out in packs, okay? Why don't we see what the efficacy of that is? The goal should be of the government should not be to pick a winner and say, uh, because you lobby the government with $330 million a year in, in fees of lobbying and trying to get legislation and try to influence, that shouldn't be the determining factor of what treatments are best for any particular disease or condition in my view. The government certainly shouldn't be in that, but the way the political system's set up and the way the bureaucracy set up with the revolving door between government and industry those incentives are in place. I think we could all agree, no matter what our political persuasion is, that there should be a law that if you worked in the government, in the Defense Department, or at the SEC, or at the FDA, that you should not be able to go into private industry for groups that are lobbying those particular agencies for 
benefits or sales or whatever for some long period of time, five years minimum, probably 10. What about lifetime? What about, we had somebody in the comments last week said, well, not everybody in government's a bad person, John, you're wrong. Okay, well then if you wanna go into public service, then you can stay in public service. You don't go into public service for a couple of years, be a high level person at one of these agencies and then rotate back to the private sector for the exact group that you were uh, supposed to be uh, regulating. Can't we all agree on that? Can't we say that the incentives are mismatched if you're looking over the horizon to your private sector job with a defense contractor, if you're in procurement at the defense department, for, if you've worked there for 20 years? You see it all the time in the military. We see guys that get 20 years in, 25 years, whatever, and then they go work for some contractor. People shouldn't be allowed to do that, especially if they're in a procurement or especially if they're in a regulatory um, capacity where they're supposed to be regulating impartially what's going on by the science, by the data. To say that people won't be influenced by money or, or a, a lucrative position at one of these private sector companies, that's foolish to think that. It's not accurate. That doesn't mean everybody, but most people react to incentives. Like I said, most people are not angels that are just there to you know look out for you. People are people and they respond to incentives. Money talks and nonsense walks. So um, here's the uh, off Twitter, CBR spot, CRB spot index makes 10 year high. After a mini tantrum in late June and early July, the Bloomberg commodity spot index has surged to a fresh 10 year high, rapidly closing in an all time high set in 2011. Oil and copper have rebounded, gas is booming, so are steel and others. So again, um, you see the kind of run-up we've had relative to some of the other run-ups. I don't know how much further this can go. It seems I'm starting to see some data about PMI slowing down in China. The savings from all the stimulus is starting to wear off. I've seen charts. Um, I'm wondering if the big push to get this infrastructure going and bill and some of these other things is because I think the administration understands that the current stimulus is wearing off that we already put into place. Um, we've seen some already some situations like with lumber where it made its big peak. Now that's a unique situation. People like to point lumber, but it's a very thinly traded market. And uh, it's still, you know, even though it's made its huge, basically parabolic spike and then dropped off by about two thirds, it's still trading relatively high uh, based on its historicals. But, you know, when you see these type of parabolic moves, as you can see in the past, uh, they usually peter out at some point, right about where we're at now. So what we would want to see is, you know, we've talked about this before, you really got to get this inflation deflation thing correct. Do we really have endemic breakout inflation happening? Or do we have a lot of money that was thrown at the global economy and shortages based on the fact that you basically shut the world economy down for a year and then ramped it up all at once. And so that created shortages and supply chain issues. It still matters to have that conversation. Right now, um, we're seeing the benefit of it in our portfolio, but as I've stated before, I am gonna be quick on the trigger. My view is, is that I thought that we would see some still near-term inflationary impetus 
Uh, I believe that would wear off at some point. We would get into a deflationary scare, if you will. And then I think that in the mid mid term, if you will, you know, six months to a year out, and then uh, eventually the Federal Reserve and the governments around the world will go back to do what they do whenever they get scared, uh, print more money and spend more money. That's uh, what they do. And, you know, eventually all roads lead to inflation. Again, it's very difficult determining the timing. It's so important to get the timing correct in these things because you can see when these things turn, uh, it's an elevator up or stairs up and an elevator down. It, you, you're not going to get a lot of warning. You're not going to get a lot of time to make a decision. So you really need to get this right. So what am I saying? Don't, if you're up, I mean, I, I just blew out a position. I'll get into this in another slide. I sold my Antero resources position. I've got, I was close to a 400% gain. You know, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to leave that on the table. It's too much of a gain. I didn't like the, some of the hedging news I saw there. And I'm, and I'm starting to look at maybe trimming some positions where there's big, big gains. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean you blow out the whole position and just go to cash. I'm not suggesting that. But if you have tremendous big profits in some of these things um, that have moved considerably, you may want to consider, you know, we got into this thing at the lows, guys. So we really have had a nice run, a lot more than a lot of other people had. So I'm not saying there's not more on there, but uh, we're definitely in the later innings, probably in some of these moves. And if you're up, you know, two, three, four hundred, five hundred percent in something, you may want to you, you may want to take uh, some off the table. That's all I'm suggesting. But we got to keep an eye on this because when these things turn, they get, it gets ugly real quick. So I wanted to talk about oil tankers again. Um, no one's talking about them as usual because all the interest left the shiny object got dull. Nothing happened like people thought in the time frame that they thought, and they disappeared. They went on to, you know, bigger and better things, which is typical. That's pretty, pretty much how things are in these markets. It's uh, not a complaint. It's just a fact. So, you know, started off this slide by saying, where have all the tourists gone? They've moved on to bigger and better things. So the question is, is, is it worth taking another look at tankers? I think it is. Rates are still fairly low. They're not, they're really ugly still for, for tankers. But fundamentals are now turning. Why do I say that? Well, OPEC, as you saw the agreement, they're going to start progressively increasing production over the next few months. And increased production as oil demand has increased as economies have opened up, uh, creates a demand increase and more oil flowing out of the Middle East that has to be transported. Um, we, I think that, you know, the demand for tankers now is going to start increasing a bit because of the increased, uh, oil demand. And you got to remember, regardless of, you know, eventually I think, which we'll get into another slide, we'll talk about in a minute, you know, I believe that the world economy, you know, doesn't really matter necessarily what happens just in each individual country, but as a whole, you know, what we've seen over the last 25, 30 years is oil demand going up about a percent to 2% a year, just about every year. So I expect we'll get back on that trend. Uh, the decline rates are still there. The lack of investment is still there, but the demand will increase and the demand for or the supply of tankers has not kept up. So there was a period of time over the last year because the demand for oil was not that high and supply had been cut quite a bit. 
that uh, we didn't see the necessarily see the pickup and tankers that we thought uh, after the um, storage uh, boom we had in storage after the original fall after uh, the market after the original lockdowns were put in place. You remember that that rates went nuts because people were storing oil on tankers and rates went completely nuts. And this guy's basically made a couple years worth of earnings in you know a few months. So rates, of course, collapsed after that because oil demand didn't come back. There was an excess amount of tankers. It's a supply and demand thing. This is one of those deals, like I've explained before, where if the demand uh, for tankers is 100 tankers in the market today, and there's only 98 or 99 tankers available, rates will spike. Conversely, if there's uh, demand for 100 tankers and there's 102 tankers available, the uh, the marginal rate is what sets the rate for all the tankers. It would go down. So it doesn't take huge swings in supplier demand to um, change these markets. It's all, all at the margin. So one of the things that I want to continue to talk about or what has talked about in the original thesis is the fact that because this industry was overbuilt for a while and the business has been so terrible, the order book for new tankers continues to remain low. Um, the estimate is that only at 8.5% of the fleet has in, been ordered. So that's the lowest it's been in, in, since 1997. So you're talking, you know, 30, 23, 24 years. Uh, this is the lowest order book that's been out there for tankers. And as we've pointed out before in previous videos, the age of the tanker fleet is getting worse. I mean, it's not an overall young fleet. It's an overall older fleet. You know, with the new regulations that still have not manifested or been put together for um, uh, the 2030 regulations around the emissions and the new uh, propulsion uh, situation for new shipping, uh, the risk is there to build a new ship and then get caught out and have a propulsion unit that does not meet the standards. So we have demand for tankers going up over the next you know, through the end of the year as more oil is being pumped by OPEC, needs to be transported. We have fleet growth that is looking to be minimal at best, which is a part of the original thesis. We have the value of existing tankers going up. And so what I'm suggesting to you is, I'm not saying jump back into this market right now, but we should be watching rates. And I think that we should see an increase in rates uh, through the end of the year. I'm not suggesting a spike. I'm not suggesting a new cycle. I'm just saying keep an eye on it because it may present an opportunity at some point. This, uh, all the other shipping sectors have participated in tremendous bull markets in the last year. And I would suggest to you, because of the supply demand dynamic in oil tankers, and because now oil demand is recovering quite nicely, uh, and there will be, a, a, I, I would suggest to you that we could see a um, relatively imminent uh, change in the fortunes for some of these tanker companies. Uh, goes back to this. I mean, seriously, who's going to build a new tanker right now in this in these conditions? And, uh, you know, what's the shipbuilding capacity to build new tankers? I mean, a lot of container ships are being ordered now. We do know that. I mean, I sold, I had one container, I had a couple container stocks. I made good money on them. I blew them out. Um, I'm not an expert on shipping. It was a trade, uh, did fairly well in it. And, uh, but I do still hold some tanker stocks. They've kind of held back the portfolio because I like the net asset value and they're cheap. 
a lot of people have left and moved on to better things. And maybe that's something I should have done. But when something's this cheap, I still like it. So it's something I'm going to have on the radar. I'm not saying go out and buy tankers right now, but the fundamentals are in place that we could see a recovery in rates and we'll see how far that goes. So this was a tweet that I liked uh, from Josh Young at uh, Bison Capital, and he does a lot. I'll be talking about him more in a minute. And what we're looking at here is this is uh, Maverick or Matador um, Energy. They were well known as one of the most aggressive shale drillers out there. And you can see what the tweet says. The F is wrong with Matador management. This is unacceptable. No change to drilling, completing, and equipping gu guidance. I signed up for growth, not effing free cash flow. I could just buy PXD or Devon for that. This is bull crap. So what this person's lamenting is, is that they want, to they want to see drill baby drill. And what we've been talking about is we have thought all along that the shale boom is over. The access to cheap capital that enabled it. Uh, people have been burned a couple times now. Wall Street's been burned. The ability of these companies to get capital and then you put on top of all of that, or the ability to get capital has been constrained just because of the fact that they couldn't really make any money or cash flow. People aren't going to keep going back to the well to give them money so they can blow it on just drilling more wells. So we saw the move to basically pay down debt, increase cash flow, have a return for shareholders. And when you see one of the most aggressive uh, former shale drillers uh, saying the same thing now, that should pretty much, you know, tell you what you need to know. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, if oil gets to 80, 90, $100 a barrel, that doesn't change. I don't know. We, I can't, the future is completely unknowable. But what we can see is right now, even with oil at, you know, with WTI, it's above 70, 72, 73, 74. We're not seeing huge increases in, in drilling. We're just not seeing it. We're not seeing the response that a lot of people thought we would, would see. I and some others thought we, we weren't going to see that because it's just, it's over with for various reasons. Access to capital, prime locations already being drilled. Now you're into secondary and tertiary, uh, lower quality uh, areas to drill. And the, and the, general, um, the general ESG zeitgeist that has thrown a wet blanket over the entire fossil fuel industry. And so... Uh, this makes me, this is another reason why I continue to remain bullish for oil and fossil fuels uh, in the short, medium, and long term. Uh, in the short term, it's really, you know, I don't know where the oil price is going to go in the short term, but I can tell you that if the current uh, wet blanket on the industry and the ESG zeitgeist and the government governments around the world being against fossil, I mean, you're not going to see the ability to attract capital to increase production. What you are not seeing though is the, is the consummate reduction in demand. Demand is inelastic and it is sticky and it's not gonna go away. As a matter of fact, I'm projecting that it's going to grow as these developing markets and these frontier markets recover, uh, especially what we're seeing like in India, the economy was ravaged by uh, what happened with the COVID-19 situation. But if you look at the data, uh, things are a lot better than they were. It's out of the news completely. Remember a month ago, all you heard was India, India, India. Now you don't hear about it anymore. Okay. Cause if you look at the data, uh, cases, hospitalization, everything's gone down. Okay. 
tremendously. So you expect an economy that big to start, you know, it will, it will recover. Demand will come back. People will go back to living their lives. And so it's the same thing with this new variant. There was a lot of people that were worried that the Delta variant was going to lead to more lockdowns. Uh, the data just doesn't show that the hospital, you know, case rates are going up. People are, are getting this evidently or testing positive, if you will, but deaths and hospitalizations are not going up like before. And people are onto it. People are in no mood to lock down again. So you have this administration, even in this country, fumbling around for their message. One person in one department says one thing, the president says something else. Do you really think that these red states are going to lock down again? It's just not going to happen. So what I'm suggesting to you is oil prices, oil demand is recovering. We can see the drawdowns in inventory. We can see, you know, the prices up, but we're not seeing the consummate uh, like I said, drilling response that a lot of people forecasted that would put the damper on any oil price rally. This is just another piece of information where one of the most aggressive drillers of the previous boom is saying that they're going to focus on cash flow. Um, that should tell you something. So obviously everybody knows Harris Kufferman on the left, uh, the guys at um, macro huddle, market huddle, I mean, let uh, Harris interview Josh Young. He's the founder and CIO of Bison Interests. Um, they do a lot of energy uh, investing. Very smart guy. This is a very good conversation. I will put a link to it. I suggest you listen to it if you're interested in energy. This Josh Young guy is pretty switched on. He uh, knows what's going on. What I also liked was the both of these guys are bullish on oil in the medium and long term in the two different ways that they choose to play it. Um, Harris is playing the outer curve out to 2025 with futures and options. And Josh is playing it with, you know, very select uh, companies that he feels are going to be able to benefit. He names a couple of them in this interview. So I'll put a link to this. It's really good. Kind of get you schooled up on the current situation in the energy market. Uh, this Josh Young has been pretty switched on. He's made me a lot of money and uh, he's worth listening to pretty smart kid. So I wanted to talk about oil company earnings. Um, these are most of the companies that I've publicly mentioned. These aren't in the newsletter, but I publicly mentioned some of these larger companies. When I was talking, you know, a year ago about buying oil companies during the um, route in these prices and what I why. And so I just wanted to give a quick rundown of what was going on with these companies and what my situation is if I still hold them or what I still think about them. And so the thesis I had for a lot of these energy companies we were beaten down, especially these, these are larger cap companies, was that um, I wanted to be in market leaders that were really cheap because why go out and the real be buy risky names when you didn't have to? You were already getting top notch. Uh, well, with the exception of a couple of these on here, you were still getting top notch. You're able to buy top notch companies that really, you know, fire sale prices. I mean, you buy Suncor, it was like cheap super cheap. Same thing with Schlumberger. So um, like I mentioned earlier in this video, I have sold my, I sold all my Ontario resources recently. Um, the recent earnings, I just don't like the hedging. Uh, there's other, we had a good run in it. It's, there's other opportunities that uh, I see that uh, I, you know, I feel I can make a better return on. It's just, it's, it's, unless you really understand hedging in the financials, it's hard for people to get their heads wrapped around what's going on with the company. I still think it's a good company. I still think they're going to do well over the long term. 
especially with natural gas, but it's really hard to analyze and, and, and figure out what's going on. There's easier places to go at, at this point, in my view. Um, I still hold Schlumberger. It's the 800-pound gorilla in oil services. Uh, it's one of the places I listen to the conference call every quarter because they're going to have their they're going to have their finger on the pulse of the oil industry. Um, their business is recovering, and they gave uh, positive forward guidance on the you know oil sector continuing to recover. They've had nice uh, you know year over year and uh, quarter to quarter. Their business is improving. So the comments were very positive. The guidance was positive. The results have been positive. Stock has moved. You know, a lot of these stocks aren't the same screaming buys they were when we first talked about them. Uh, if you feel that the oil industry or the oil business were going to maintain these higher prices then, or go higher, then some of these things are still buys. But uh, I'm holding these. These are holds for me right now. Um, still like Suncor, a tremendous cash flow machine. You know, this is what I tried to say about some of these oil sands producers. They have tremendous fixed costs. They have break-evens. Once they hit that fixed cost break-even threshold, everything above that is goes right to the bottom line, goes right, it's straight cash flow. Um, so, you know, we're trading, like I said, you know, 70, above $70 a barrel consistently on Brent and WTI, even with the differentials and some of the other issues in Canada. This company's cash flowing tremendously. They're buying back a lot of shares. That's what we wanted to see. That's what's happening. I still think that's a little undervalued. You could probably still make a case for buying Suncor, but it's gushing cash and buying back shares. We want to see more of that with a lot of the producers. And we have seen more and more announcements of debt paydowns by various of these Canadian producers, uh, especially with ones in the portfolio. That's also accretive to shareholders as you pay down debt. So we've seen a lot of guidance and a lot of uh, management say that their priority is to pay down their debt and start returning uh, capital to shareholders via uh, share repurchases and dividends. Um, Athabasca, this was a very speculative name. We said this when I originally threw it out there. I've got a lot of comments from people. They really, a lot of people like this pick. It was a great pick for us in the portfolio. It wasn't in the portfolio, my personal portfolio and the public out there that I gave this to. This was a perfect example of a company, you know, below 60, 55, $60 a barrel. This company doesn't work at that. It kind of treads water, goes away eventually. You get to these higher oil prices, this thing turns into a cash machine. Um, record earnings, cash flow, and adjusted funds flow. Go read the, um, go read the uh, recent report, listen to the conference call. Uh, if oil prices move higher, this thing has the most torque out of all these names to a higher oil price. So if the oil price stays at 70 or moves higher, you know, most of these companies on here already have a lot of their infrastructure in the ground. They're not talking about going nuts with increasing supply. It's just a matter of, you know, maintenance capital and a few little projects here and there to try to maintain production or have some small growth. So you have tremendous amounts of cash flow being able to move to the, to the uh, balance sheet. And uh, I still think there's a lot of fear and loathing and scarring in the oil industry. There's not going to eventually, if these prices stay high for a year or two, if they move considerably higher, look, uh, people's uh, managements in the industry, their views will change and they'll start spending money again. But they're still scarred. There's still a lot of, you know, is this real? Is this going to last? 
a lot of news out there, a lot of people, you know, thinking that, well, we're going to relock everything down because of the Delta variant, all these little things. But if you look at the facts, the facts are that uh, um, demand's coming back, prices look to stay elevated for some period. And OPEC, you know, they want to maintain a little bit higher prices too. So it kind of works for everybody, these prices, or slightly higher. You start getting higher higher prices or, or I've, you know, I've projected already that eventually we're going to have an energy crisis in the next few years just because of the underinvestment. But right now, uh, you got these things are gushing cash. Uh, the other holding that I had mentioned uh, publicly, and I think uh, Josh Young talks about it, him and Harris in the video, they talk about Sandridge. Um, this is really in the Mississippi Lime area in Oklahoma. Uh, this company's went through a big restructuring. It was mismanaged for a while. It was growth at any cost, a lot of debt. They had a new management come in. They basically are not drilling any new wells. They're basically just blowing down production and everything's going to the bottom line. They are unhedged. I like that. They're building cash with gas above $4 in MCF. Um, that's working out pretty well. Their assets are not the best assets in the world, but at these higher prices for natural gas and natural gas liquids, uh, they're making hay right now. So um, Josh and Young in the video makes the case that at certain prices, you can see a company like this go up 10 or 15 times in value from here. So I'm not suggesting it will. I don't know if it will, but the case can be made at certain price decks. So my forecast and, you know, making forecasts, of course, is a mugs game in the short term. I think, you know, like I've said before, I'm quite confident that in the longer term, over the next two, three, four years, we're going to have an energy crisis because of the pressure being put on the industry and the lack of investment. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, we see price deck for the rest of the year, at least around 70, maybe a creeping higher as we get to the end of the year. And uh, cash flow and capital discipline seems to be the story from the reports that I'm seeing right now. So I just wanted to give you an update on this. This is, you know, this worked out perfectly for us. These names, the names that we have in the portfolio even worked out a lot better on a percentage gain. These are large cap companies for the most part. Um, and they were, a couple of these were like gems like Schlumberger and Suncor. We had some home runs with Athabasca and Antero. Uh, and I give credit to like Antero. You know, these were not all my ideas. I mean, it was, this, this doesn't mean I'm smart. I mean, I got the, 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 the idea on AR from Twitter, from Contrarian8888 and uh, Nick Jones. Um, Schlumberger and Suncor were like obvious upside the head picks. I mean, who wouldn't buy these? These are, you know, they were gems, they're crown jewels, and they were selling at uh, generational lows. Athabasca was uh, one I got from, um, uh, what's the guy in Canada? Nine, nine Point Capital, I forget his name now. But, uh, you know, these, you know, and Sandridge uh, was a um, Josh Young pick. So it makes sense to follow people that are smarter than you. Uh, when you get an idea, then you have to go and do the research yourself. You have to confirm the idea. But uh, this is why I cultivate the, the Twitter uh, people that I follow. I use them as my uh, own analysts. And uh, so this really worked out well for us. And I just wanted to update this. If you have been a longtime listener, I hope that you were able to participate in some of these moves. So uh, here we go. Uh, European gas prices, natural gas prices are making fresh highs. 
Um, there's, again, we're starting to see that, you know, we've seen $4 in MCF in the US. We're seeing shortages of LNG. That's where we're seeing increased coal burning in some countries like China. You know, something's going on now as energy, uh, as economic activity picks up, as electrical generation has picked up because of the heat waves we've seen, uh, switching, uh, fuel switching that's going on, and just, you know, overall, you know, market that's uh, recovering quite nicely. So I wanted to point this out. No real big actionable thing to say, except to say that uh, this has been quite the run over the last year or so. Now, I am thinking based on the weather forecasting folks that I talked to and listened to, listen to uh, I think we could have, you know, I think it's, they said back-to-back -back La Niñas, and that usually, you know, coincides with the colder than normal winter. Uh, the one person that I follow on the weather forecasting is suggesting a earlier start to winter and a very, very cold winter. So the inability to rebuild natural gas stocks, I'm talking about in the U.S. I'm not forecasting the entire world, but in the U.S., expect a sooner start to winter and a colder winter. Uh, it kind of fits into my whole thesis that the biggest mind screw in the history of the world, contrarian bet, is the fact that the earth is not necessarily going to get hotter it's actually going to get cooler and uh, if that happens that's going to open up a whole plethora of opportunity and i think the world's really not set up for that uh and that i think that could kick you into your energy crisis uh we're already seeing the underinvestment. if we get in a situation where we have these we have this really hot summer the inability to build um inventories and then you go into a colder than new normal winter, you, you could really see some price spikes. So we'll have to see how that plays out. So this was uh, a freight waves, which is talking about uh, dry bulk uh, carriers and why uh, the rates are so high. And it's because, uh, you know, what's happening in the thermal coal markets or quite a bit of the move has been because of coal. And so from the article, exceptionally hot weather has hiked electricity usage which is simultaneously being pushed up by growing economic activity. Higher electricity usage increases demand for thermal coal imports. Well, no duh. Quote, this year, a hot summer in Asia has led several of the big consumers, which have been shifting away from coal, to not shift all at all. A drought in May in southern China cut that region's access to hydropower, an alternative to coal. More recently, the problem has been too much water in northern China. This month's tragic floods are curtailing coal moves from inland sources. Chinese state planner reported that coal transport from Inner Mongolia to Eastern and Central China has been severely impacted. Hot weather is simultaneously boosting prices and lowering reserves of natural gas, which competes with thermal coal for power generation. Quote, even in Europe, which is the epicenter for decarbonization, low natural gas inventories are driving a sharp increase in thermal coal imports from virtually every nation. So I'll put a link to the article, you can peruse it, but you know, um, again, I think we're setting up for this energy crisis. Something's happening, um, fossil fuels aren't going away. No talk about windmills or solar panels picking up the, uh, picking up the slack here. Uh, no, no talk about the energy transition. Uh, when the bottom line, when the rubber hits the road, we've, we've, pushed ourselves into a box canyon potentially by putting so much emphasis on trans transiting to a low carbon green future that we forgot that it takes decades, not one or two years or politicians promises 
and that we may have set ourselves up for uh, an energy crisis sooner than we thought. So uh, the video is a little bit late today. Just want to explain why I did an interview with another gentleman talking about Uzbekistan stocks. Uh, this particular individual is based in Germany and decided to invest in Uzbekistan. He liked what he saw. He gets into that in the conversation a bit. It's not anything new that you guys don't, we haven't talked about before. The reason I wanted to have him on is he opened a brokerage account there and, and has been buying his own stocks. He goes through the process. He talks about it. It was not difficult. He was able to do it from Germany. He did not have to travel there. Uh, he goes through the whole process. We talk about it. And so I wanted to get that video out because uh, we're, you know, he's in Germany. I'm in Texas. Uh, I had to do that video first and then uh, do this video. So this is a little late today. That's why it's late. Uh, but I'll get both videos up, uh, this video up immediately. And then the other video, you know, I've seen, you know, I'm trying to get people to think about selling overvalued markets like the U.S. and buying cheap things like Uzbekistan. And it's kind of hard for people to do that. I do it through AFC Uzbekistan fund. It has a high minimum. And this particular individual is doing his own thing and he's doing it from his house. And it just in Germany. So it kind of, a couple things. I think it's really cool. His experience was really good. Um, he didn't really have any issues and it's working out well. And it just goes to show you that, you know, you cannot, you, you shouldn't limit yourself and there's really no reason to. The technology is available. Everything was done on email and Zoom. And uh, he just explains the whole process. So as more and more of the world opens up, you get the potential to buy things or get involved with things that are extremely undervalued or areas where the big players can't play yet and get your position on now in a cheap market before the big money really can, can get, can get in there and it will come eventually. And so we talk about that. Um, so that's it for this week, guys. I hope you enjoyed the video. Um, we'll see you in the comments and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.